and I almost want to just get this out of the way and deal with it, is, is the whole question of how Genesis should be interpreted, particularly the first couple of chapters dealing with creation. So hermeneutics is a big word, and you should learn it if you're a Christian, if you don't know it already. It is the study and science and art of interpreting literature, not just the Bible, but hermeneutics. It's a whole field of study that looks at how do you interpret literature or things that have been written. And the particular, there's one particular hermeneutical principle that I really want to zoom in today because it's key to understanding the book of Genesis. And the hermeneutical principle is this. You, when you're reading literature, particularly ancient literature, you've got to ask yourself the question, what did the author intend when they wrote the passage? That's key to understanding the passage. What did the author intend to convey. The second part of this hermeneutical principle is to ask yourself the question, well, how would the early hearers, the people that received that communication for the first time, how would they have understood what was being said? And so the hermeneutical principle that, that both these thoughts are wrapped up in is this idea that the original context and setting of a communication locks in the meaning of the verse. So I want to illustrate this, this hermeneutical principle in, in, in the best way I could think. And that's by looking at the word, the adjective, gay. Now if you looked up in a dictionary uh, even 50 years ago, you would find that the meaning of the term gay or to be gay meant to be carefree, to be cheerful, and to be bright and showy. Okay, and many people would describe themselves as being gay. I would have been gay some of the time. And, and an, another little illustration of the use of this term is, is West Side Story. How many of you are familiar with this beautiful music? Uh, West Side Story. There's this famous song. I, I won't sing it. I feel pretty, oh so pretty. I feel pretty and witty and gay. And it is such a cool song. And I can assure you that when Maria sings this, she is not coming out. <laughs> Later on in the song, she explains she is very much in love with a pretty boy that she has met. With a pretty boy that she has met. So where am I going with this? And this is the hermeneutical principle that applies. When you come across the words to West Side Story, I feel pretty, and Maria says... She is gay. We can't understand the song with our modern mindset and understanding of the word gay and how it is particularly used today. You have to ask yourself, well, what did the person that wrote the song intend by that? And how would the original hearers have understood it? 
Do you see how the hermeneutical principle applies? Because the real meaning of the song, when Maria sings, she's feeling pretty and witty and gay. She means something very particular, and it could be different to what a person hearing it for the first time today could think that it meant. But it wasn't just... Broadway that sang about being gay. John, uh, sorry, Charles Wesley wrote this hymn, Dear is the Day Which God Has Made. And it's a lovely hymn. <laughs> and if you get to the second verse, he says, The gay who rest nor worship prize Jehovah's changeless sign despise. So here's Charles Wesley writing a hymn and he refers to the gay. He's referring to secular society and to people that are not valuing rest, the seventh day. They're not valuing worship. And he says that all these, the gay out there, they do not take of note of God's changeless sign, which is, of course, the rainbow in the sky. So there is a certain possible prophetic irony in the song that the gay do not recognize God's sign of the rainbow. But of course that is not what Charles Wesley meant at all because when he sang about the gay he was speaking about people who were glad and happy and carefree. So when we read this Charles Wesley hymn, when we hear West Side Story and the term gay being used, it means something specific because the meaning got locked in by the author, by the intention, by the original meaning. Do you all see how, how this works? So when we come to the Bible, which was written thousands of years ago in a, in a very foreign culture to us, in a foreign language, in a language that is written backwards. Well, I suppose it's true to say we're writing backwards and they were the ones that first wrote properly. It's a very different culture and language and we have to put ourselves into the the context of when it was written and ask what was the intention of the author, and how would the first recipients have understood it? Let me give you another example of how language functions. I want you to think of a young couple who are very much in love, and they're at Camps Bay or Chapman's Peak, and they're watching the sun go down. And the one turns to the other and says, you know, right now I'm feeling butterflies in my stomach. Being here with you tonight is a dream. I love you to the moon and back. Watching the sun go down like this makes my heart skip a beat. And we all understand perfectly well what's being communicated here. Love is in the air. And this is valid communication. In fact, for the recipient of this communication, these might be the most meaningful words and important words they've ever heard. But if you were to actually analyze what's being said here, 
If you were given, given it to a bunch of robots who had no understanding of love and relationship and human emotion, you said, will you please analyze what's going on here? If they brought a scientific and technical understanding to that communication, they would discover that it's full of errors because there are no butterflies in anybody's stomach. They are not dreaming. You can't love somebody to the moon and back. It's nonsense. The sun doesn't go down. The earth spins. Hearts don't skip beats, to my knowledge. Well, if they do, that's not a good thing. <laughs> and love isn't in the air. It's a chemical reaction in your head. <laughs> so, so when you see these words or hear these words being said, we recognize that that's how people in love communicate with each other. They're not trying to be scientifically correct and accurate. It's a different kind of communication. And the word to describe the different kinds of communication that we have in the world today and in the Bible is the term genre. Genre. It's a French word, so I've been told. And it, it describes the kind of communication that you're looking at. And even in the last 10 or 20 years, we've had many new genres being invented. You know, 30 years ago, a tweet was something a bird did. <laughs> Post was something that got put in your door. Who knew what a meme was? A blog, a uh, a vlog. By the way, I discovered only about three weeks ago you get video memes. Did you know that? Okay. You get novels, newspaper articles, opinion pieces. And of course we get scientific literature. These are all different genres. And the, things that, the thing that we need to understand about a genre is that they all have their own set of rules. In a lover's poem or in a blog, you can share that you have butterflies in your stomach. And everybody's okay with that. If you're writing a scientific journal for the Journal of Gastroenterology, <laughs> and there you say you have butterflies in your, in your stomach, it means something different. So the key to understanding any literature, any communication, is to identify its genre. Because if you get the genre wrong, you'll come to a faulty conclusion about what's being said. So now we come to the, the million dollar question. What kind of literature is Genesis one and two. What is the genre here of this literature? And I've pointed out that we need to be sensitive to the original context. We need to be sensitive to how words and language are being used. And we need to bear in mind the purpose of the author. 
And it is my personal belief that judging from the literary structure of Genesis 1 and 2, that it is more poetic in nature than scientific. It is primarily a theological document. The author's purpose is theological. It is not intended to be interrogated by a 21st century scientific mindset. To do that would be like the woman turning to the romantic at Chapman's Peak and stopping him mid-sentence and saying, what do you mean you have butterflies in your stomach? It's the wrong time to be doing that kind of analysis. Just Take it all in, take it from where it comes, and enjoy the meaning that is being conveyed. Don't try and bring a scientific mindset and ruin the moment. And ruin the moment. The Bible is full of poetry. Especially from the prophets and the psalmists. And that doesn't undermine in any way the theological truth that's being conveyed. Even Jesus spoke in hyperbole often. When Jesus spoke about camels passing through the eyes of needles, no camel under any circumstance can ever pass through an eye of a needle. It is just a funny picture. It's not intended to be taken literally. Science, as we know it today, was only invented thousands of years after Genesis was written. We can't bring that modern framework, methodology, to the text of Genesis. It's like bringing your modern understanding of the word gay and reading it into West Side Story. You just can't do it. If you, if you do it, you're wrong. You have to understand the message and the context in which it was written and for the purpose for which it was written. And so it is with the Bible. But this approach to Genesis doesn't imply that statements being made are scientifically inaccurate. I'm just not making the case, sorry, I'm just making the case that the purpose of Genesis 1 is to teach us about God. Whether the days were 24 hours of 60 minutes and 60 seconds a pop has very little to do with the message of Genesis. My personal view is that the, the framework of the days is simply a literary device to teach us some wonderful theology about God. You might think it's laying out a scientific description of how God made the world, and that's fine. But when we're looking at Genesis chapter 1 and 2, let's not miss the forest for all of the trees before us. You can get so focused on the detail that you miss the message. So what is the message of Genesis 1? 
Verse 1 says this, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's the message of Genesis chapter 1. That God is the creator, that he did it. That God created the heavens, the spirit world, and the physical world. This was powerful stuff to the original hearers. They believed in there being many gods, gods of the sky and gods of the trees and who knows what else. But here they're being told in the beginning, God, that there's one God. He created everything, spiritual and material. Genesis 1 is not so much a commentary on how God created but who created? Our second verse is important too. And the earth was formless and empty and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. I don't think the author is intending us to think of radiation and photons of light and waves and everything that we might think about light. What is the original author saying? What is the message that's being conveyed? It's this, that God is the one who brings order into chaos. It's a commentary on the, the greatness of God, on God's immense power. As we close in... A few minutes, I want to show you a fantastic video that really displays the, the glory of God's creation. And I've watched it many times, and every time I view it, I'm just stunned by the enormity of God's creation and the intricacy of it. The psalmist is right when they said, O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Paul was right when in Romans 1 he said, Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. The third powerful message from Genesis, in addition to God is the creator of everything and that God brings order into chaos, the third big takeaway for the, the people that first heard Genesis was that all that God had made was good, was, was good. That would be Genesis verse 4. God saw that the light was good. When God created the universe, everything he created was good. Everything. There's no eternal dualism of good and evil always present. There's no yin and yang. The universe God created was 100% good. As we close, I want to just 
touch on briefly the relationship between science and spirituality, science and faith. There have been a number of different relationships or approaches. Some people see that science and spirituality and faith are incompatible, that they're enemies. Others see them just as being independent. Let the spirituality deal with the spiritual stuff and stay out of science. And you scientists do your scientific stuff and stay out of spirituality. That's another approach. Others are a little bit warmer and say, no, they're complementary. Science and spirituality can work together. In fact, some would even go so far as to say that science can even help you with your faith. And it's helped me with mine in my appreciation of the greatness of God. There's nothing like a bit of science to fix your view of, of God. So would faith and science ever contradict each other? And I believe they won't. Good science and good spirituality will never contradict each other because they're both equally true. Poor science and poor spirituality will contradict each other. But good science in no way rules out the existence of God. And good theology in no way rules out the validity of science. It was God who brought order out of chaos, making the scientific method possible. Science is about observation, telling us what is. Science answers the question, what? Spirituality answers the question, why? Scientists can tell us what is here, not why it's here. Scientists can tell us what we are and where we are, well, only in relation to something else, but not why we are here. It is most unwise to make science and faith enemies or opponents. They are not. And where there's a clash between science and theology, it is due either to bad theology or bad science. I want to close before we do the video with a story of the time science and spirituality clashed. I'm going to take you back to 1633 A.D., and it took the Vatican, the Catholic Church, 350 years to acknowledge that Galileo was correct. That the earth did indeed travel around the sun. And here's a, an article, I've just taken a few lines from an article that appeared in the New York Times in 1992. And that's where the 350-year apology came. It took the Catholic Church 13 years to kind of do the investigation and finally conclude that Galileo was right all along. I mean, how is that? How could the church be so opposed to scientific development, when Galileo could sit and look at his telescope night after night, 
and see that indeed the planets and the earth were rotating around the sun. And when he shared that with the church, he was threatened with torture. He was arrested. And he was put under house arrest for eight years. For eight years. And then the church had a trial and they threatened him with torture and finally Galileo was forced to recant his beliefs and to describe them as abjured, cursed and detested. Otherwise he'd been burnt at the stake, which he didn't want. That was a fight he wasn't going to go all the way with. Rumor says that after Galileo got up from kneeling on the ground and confessing all of his scientific beliefs as being not true, as he got up, he said in Latin under his breath, but it does move. <laughs> Here's also a little communication to his friend Kepler. Another great scientist. My dear Kepler, I wish that we might laugh at the remarkable stupidity of the common herd. What do you have to say about the principled philosophers of this academy who are filled with the stubbornness of an ass, who do not look at either the planets, the moon, or the telescope, even though I freely and deliberately offered them the opportunity a thousand times? Here's a frustrated scientist engaging with the church who is sticking with a wrong interpretation of Scripture, not understanding that some of those descriptions in creation in the book of Psalms are poetic and intended to be understood as such. So friends, my message today, there's no conflict with science and Christianity, science and the Bible. But we do need to make sure that we interpret the Bible within the context and with the understanding that the author had and the original recipients would have understood. The message of the book of Genesis is not to give us scientific fact. It's to enthrall us with the glory of God. It's to give us security in this life that God brings order into chaos and that he, he is in control. So enjoy this video and the music.